It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the extraordinary row over Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's chief advisor who reportedly broke the lockdown rules. We'll be looking at why Boris Johnson invested so much political capital in just one aid, what it says about his hold over the Prime Minister, the state of his Downing Street operation, and the mood of the Conservative Party. Plus, we'll be discussing the launch of the Track and Trace operation, ahead of lockdown being eased next week and Britain being allowed to socialise again. I'm delighted to be joined remotely by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking and enjoying this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And you can also leave us a nice review. The only political story that mattered this week was the one about Dominic Cummings. The influential advisor reportedly broke the lockdown rules of the UK by making a 264-mile trip from his London home to his parents' property in County Durham while showing symptoms of coronavirus. The report started to come out last Friday that suggested Mr Cummings had gone against the spirit, if not the exact law, of the lockdown rules, including a rather bizarre 30-minute trip to a market town called Barnard Castle, which has now entered the national lexicon, to test his eyesight. The amount of political capital invested has been extraordinary. And the question remains, why did Boris Johnson go so far to protect just one advisor? So George Parker, if we could just cast back into your experience of reporting here, can you ever recall any prime minister or any party leader putting so much capital into one advisor because we had this really extraordinary press conference in the Downing Street Garden on Monday where Mr Cummings took questions for over an hour about his behaviour during the lockdown, about this trip up to County Durham, and still he's clung on, he's not quit and doesn't show any signs of doing so. Well, in my experience of reporting politics, it's certainly an unprecedented situation. You know, you can think back to other advisors who've had a grip on the Prime Minister at the time. So we think back to Alan Walters, Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor back in the late 1980s, who basically Margaret Thatcher sided with him and then ended up losing her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, in the row of the exchange rate mechanism. And then more recently, of course, we had Alistair Campbell and the pivotal role he played in the early Blair administration. But neither Alan Walters nor Alistair Campbell were ever accorded the privilege of going out to give a press conference on their own behalf in the Rose Garden of Number 10 Downing Street, a location which is normally reserved for moments of very high politics indeed. And it was a sign, really, I think, of the power that Dominic Cummings exerts in this government. And indeed, the power he exerts is reflected by the fact that Boris Johnson is determined to hold on to him. Well, when we look back to when these reports first surfaced last Friday from the Daily Mirror and the Guardian newspaper, the first response from Downing Street was to say this is all fake news. It's not true. These are biased left-wing papers who are trying to, you know, attack the government. But then the reports kept coming, George, on Saturday and Sunday. And 
there have been reports of a second trip to Durham, which Mr. Cummings furiously denies, but he has never denied this crucial element, which was an hour-long driving trip where in that press conference he gave the bizarre reason of testing his eyesight. And despite the fact 71% of the British public think he broke the law and Durham police said that he had broken the lockdown rules, Boris Johnson has said as far as he's concerned, he really didn't. And so for the first time really in his premiership, the Prime Minister and Mr Cummings have found themselves completely at odds with the public mood on this. I think that's the important thing. I think it's a masterclass on how not to handle an episode like this. I mean, anyone would tell you if the crisis comes, you get all the facts out there straight away and you apologise if necessary. And Dominic Cummings did the opposite, didn't he? He said he didn't really care what other people thought of what he'd done. And it wasn't until much later on that he gave that press conference and the whole facts came out into the open. And by that point, it was too late to contain it because it wasn't just campaigning newspapers, in the words of Downing Street, like The Mirror and The Guardian that were going for Dominic Cummings. It was papers like The Telegraph as well. And of course, most famously, The Daily Mail, who asked, what planet are they on? So it became a huge crisis. It was extremely badly handled. At the end of the week, you have to look back at the fact that this has exhausted a huge amount of political capital for for the Prime Minister. I don't think Dominic Cummings is going anywhere now. They've been through the fire. Unless, of course, the Sunday newspapers have got any additional information that we don't know about. I don't think he could go through another week of this. One of the things, Laura Hughes, I found extraordinary this week is this Downing Street loves to focus group everything. They have daily polls that report the public mood on the sentiment of everything from Brexit to immigration to lockdown, you name it. And so much of their messaging is driven by that. And the polls this week have been absolutely dreadful. You've seen the single biggest drop in the Conservative Party's vote share in a decade when nine points were knocked off their lead. The Prime Minister's personal ratings dropped by 20 points in one week. And the government's approval ratings dropped by 16 points in just a couple of days. And Mr Cummings sells himself and has created this public image of being the man in touch with the public mood, the man who can read part of the electric previously ignored by politicians. Well, this time, it's incredible how out of step they have got with this and just how much of the Prime Minister's goodwill and his standing has been wasted on trying to protect this one advisor. Exactly. As you said, it's just ironic that Dominic Cummings is the man in number 10 who is supposedly connected with the public mood and is on another level, perhaps, to some of our normal politicians. And Yet the Prime Minister's insistence on standing by him because he feels he needs someone who can read the public has completely backfired. The really interesting thing, I think, just looking forward is the long-term public health damage that this might do in number 10. They're probably dismissing these polls for now because, yes, it might do some damage in the short term, but I think they're gambling on the fact that by the time we get to the next election, people might have forgotten about it. Dominic Cummings might have gone by then. And this won't be a huge issue in a general election. So it's okay to sort of ride the storm. But the crucial test is, do we see people deciding not to comply with the new track and trace system? Do we see people starting to flout the rules because they feel if Dominic Cummings can get away with it, if we can use our good judgment, if we're allowed to follow our instincts in areas that are a bit grey, that will be really damaging. And I think the whole point of this is almost not really about the politics and the man Dominic Cummings. It's the fact that this row has potentially allowed the lockdown message to become muddled and confused because it's not been a totally black and white issue for people. It's caused confusion. And 
that's the point where people start to potentially put their lives at risk because of a political story. And it would be worth looking at the numbers and continuing to talk to Tory MPs who've said this week that they're seeing their own constituents on social media or on emails saying that they're not going to bother anymore, that they're not going to comply because they don't feel they have to anymore. Indeed, and we saw that senior figures in the party like Penny Bordent, who was a cabinet minister and is now a junior minister at the cabinet office, she wrote to a constituent and said, there is no doubt this has damaged public health. You've seen some of the government's own scientific advisers have said that it's damaged the standing of the lockdown message. Robert Trimsey, I'd like to bring you in just to talk about this element of why Downing Street was so combative over this. A lot of this is down to an attitude that's often described as the vote leave attitude, that those folks who led the Brexit campaign, the 2016 referendum, they're very pugnacious, combative. And the attitude that we saw then is the same attitude that we saw during the 2019 election, during that get Brexit done, where they really hammered home some key messages over and over again. Instead of trying to walk away from fights, which is what normally happens in politics, they actually see to double down on them. And that's very much what we saw this week here. And it also shows that that vote leave mentality, it does have its limits in government. Because as George said earlier, if they just got all the facts out there at the beginning, instead of trying to fight this thing and make it a culture war, then they would have been in a much better place. Yes, Seb, I think that's absolutely right. There is a tendency at the heart of this government, the vote leave group, as you say, to come out fighting all the time, to use the combative approach to pull their own supporters on side. But where the miscalculation was this time is that although they certainly did rally some people to their defence, they also lost some of their own voters because those voters could see that this was problematic and they weren't telling it straight. I think the fundamental question and the judgment they've taken is whether this really resonates in the long run. They understand that it's got cut through to the public and it will be remembered. But that as we go through the next four years to an election, other things that will dominate people's minds, you know, the whole problem of coming out of lockdown and the economic uncertainty and recession that follows, the government's going to have enough problems and that this will fade. I think it was George who said this when we were talking a few days ago. This is rather like the Bernie Eccleston affair under Tony Blair, which was the first time people started to look at Tony Blair and say, hang on, you're a bit shifty. We don't trust you as much as we thought we did. And it was the beginning of the process whereby people stopped viewing the government in a positive light. And I think that's the issue for this government. This is the beginning of the slide away of its full support. And people look at it and say, do you know what? I'm not quite as in love with this government as I was. And it just gives them less leeway to get other things wrong. And another parallel, George, that's been drawn is 2007 and Gordon Brown, the election that never was, that he came prime minister after Tony Blair had left office. He was generally seen no flash, just Gordon, and was seen as a calm, steady pair of hands and was preparing to go to the ballot box. And as we know, the prime minister bottled it. He didn't go to the ballot box. And again, that sheen was taken off and Gordon Brown never really recovered from that. And it gave a big opportunity for the Conservative Party, then led by David Cameron, to say that he was sort of weak throughout all this. And one other element of weakness of this story with Dominic Cummings as well is just that the cabinet was told en masse to tweet in support on Saturday. And you could see by the language used by Dominic Raab and Rishi Sunak that there was clearly a line to take here. There was then radio silence on Sunday. After Mr Cummings's press conference on Monday, they were then told to all go and tweet again in support of him, which, as I think William Ragg, a backbench Conservative MP, said is demeaning the office of these cabinet ministers by getting them just to tweet out these supportive lines, whether they think it or not. 
Well, it did demean them, and in some cases it questioned their propriety, and particularly the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, tweeting in defence of Dominic Cummings and what he'd done while a police investigation was still live. So that was very odd. But I think your point, and the point that Robert was making, is the important one, really, that if you think about Boris Johnson and Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, initially what they did was they persuaded the public that they were not like the politicians that they were replacing, and they weren't like other politicians. And Robert mentioned the Eccleston affair, where Tony Blair ended up saying, well, look, I'm a straight kind of guy, and people raised their eyebrows to that. Gordon Brown was the opposite of Tony Blair, wasn't he? He wasn't going to be like Blair, he wasn't going to be shifty. And then he told a palpable lie about why he hadn't called the election in 2007. It was obvious because he thought he might not win it. And the same thing in space, really, with Boris Johnson, which is that you know his whole shtick, really, has been that he's the person who understands the people. He's not part of the elite. Dominic Cummings certainly isn't part of the elite. And so here they are for a whole week behaving like politicians. And I think that's the, the worrying thing, that you start to sort of think, well, actually, maybe Boris Johnson is a politician like all the others. And the stakes are raised by the fact that we now have a Labour leader who's doing the opposite. You know, Keir Starmer, who's rising above the fray, didn't initially at least call for Dominic Cummings' resignation, looking rather statesmanlike. And that's the danger in the long term. Laura, we should also remember there were so many Conservative MPs this week. I think the total was about 40 to 45 by the last count that said Mr Cummings should go. And again, it's that sense of just taking the sheen off Boris Johnson because these MPs obviously loved the Prime Minister, the fact that he won the 2019 election. A lot of those MPs owed their careers to him for his delivering that 80-seat majority. And one of the things that struck me about the rebellion saying Mr Cummings should go was how wide it went across the Conservative Party. You had everything from hardcore Bexters like Steve Baker, who wrote a very powerful argument last Sunday saying Mr Cummings should go, to the more One Nation Conservatives, people who are naturally going to be sceptical of Mr Cummings, but also a lot of the 29 intake. There was an interesting intervention from three of the Red Wall MPs in the northeast of England in County Durham, where Mr Cummings visited, and they wrote a very critical statement that went just one step short of calling for him to go. So it feels again as if whereas Downing Street, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings were held in reverence by these MPs, that has now definitely gone, and they're going to be less willing just to go along with whatever he wants to do in the future. Yeah, I think a large part of it is that the MPs that I was speaking to said they were receiving hundreds of emails from constituents. And the point that was coming through, and it's the question that journalists kept asking Dominic Cummings at that briefing, why is there one rule for the public and another for the political elites? The whole point of the last election was the Conservative Party trying to appeal to everyone and to try and distance themselves from Theresa May and her regime. And this is a story that reached the front page of the Daily Star this week. It had real cut through. It wasn't a bubble story. Everybody was talking about it. People were really incensed. A lot of, I think, Conservative MPs in those red wall seats will have been under a lot of pressure from their voters. And that's why they were coming out on Twitter. They know they need to stay in good favour with those voters that might have lent the Tories their vote in the last election. It was really extraordinary on Thursday at the Downing Street press briefing when the chief medical officer and chief scientific officer were both asked by Laura Coombsberg at the BBC what they thought of Dominic Cummings breaking the rules. And the prime minister wouldn't let them answer. And that was a real moment where, again, even if you're not 
that politically engaged, you'd watch that and think, why is the Prime Minister telling them what they can and cannot say? It didn't look right. If this story rumbles on, it will be because stories start to emerge of a real sense of disquiet amongst the government scientific advisors who on Thursday were trying to say that they were civil servants and that they don't get involved. But actually, this is a public health matter because, as we mentioned earlier, the muddling of the message is a medical and scientific problem for the government. So do we see either of them decide to leave? Probably not. It's probably too late now. And George, we've sort of got this sense from Downing Street that Mr Cummings might not hang around forever. And of course, we've been here before. I'm sure you can remember when we wrote stories saying that Mr Cummings would be gone for Brexit. He'd be gone after the election. And curiously, he's still with us. And there's some people saying he'll be gone before the end of the year. He's going to be gone once Brexit has been sorted and he's fixed the civil service. Although I don't quite know how you can do both of those things quite quickly. But it strikes me as wrong because the sense that I got from speaking to the vote leave people in Downing Street is they feel if Dominic Cummings goes, there's a lot of other people who would go too because there's all sorts of advisors, people most listeners won't have heard of, like Cleo Watson and Lee Kane, Director of Communications, Oliver Lewis, a policy advisor, who are all very close to Dominic Cummings. And if he goes, then whoever replaces him may not allow those people to have the reign they currently do. So you could see a much bigger configuration of the Downing Street operation there. Do you think that he will still be in place this time? time next year, by the next election? Or the fact that Boris Johnson has put so much capital into saving him this time means they're simply just not going to go until they get kicked out of office? Well, we wrote an article for the FT magazine back in January, didn't we, Seb, where we looked at this Dominic Cummings. Let's give the impression he's just passing through and this is a temporary spell. But in fact, he sort of never actually quite leaves the scene, does he? If you think back to around the time of Brexit, We were always told that Dominic Cummings was about to go off and have an operation, which never actually seemed to take place, or that he was about to leave after a few months and then he's still there. I think there are some things that Dominic Cummings cares passionately about. He does really want to achieve in government before he leaves. Delivering Brexit, obviously, is one of them. He's massively passionate about science. So this idea of setting up an agency which will develop pioneering science, so-called DARPA or ARPA agency, based on the American model. And he does want to reform the civil service. And that's not a project which lasts a matter of months, it's a project which lasts a matter of years. So I think Dominic Cummings is here for much more than a few months, partly because, as you were alluding to there, the Prime Minister depends on him. And he is the linchpin of a whole operation which has been imported into Number 10 from the Vote Leave campaign. And Boris Johnson seems to want an administration which shakes things up, is abrasive, does do things differently. So I'd be quite surprised if Dominic Cummings has gone before the end of 2020, that's for sure. Now, Downing Street have tried to move on from the Dominic Cummings story by announcing on Thursday that the long-awaited test and trace system has launched notionally on Friday. This is a series of thousands of contact tracers that means that if you're in the UK and you now show symptoms of COVID, you have to report it into these contact tracers and anyone you've been in contact with for more than a certain period of time and a certain distance. It means you have to self-isolate and those people have to too. This is crucial, Boris Johnson said, to try and open up up the economy, get things moving again and have essentially lots of smaller localised lockdowns. This announcement was greeted with some surprise as the system was not due to launch till June the 1st. And as we've reported extensively in the FT, there's lots of problems with the NHS's app and we still have no real idea when that's going to launch. Laura, can you just take us through what this system is going to look like? It looks very much like they launched this early just to get people 
talking about something else apart from Dominic Cummings. But Boris Johnson has promised this is going to be a world-beating contact tracing system, given that the opposition to that is South Korea and other countries that have much more experience of that. It seems a rather tall claim. Yes, I should say that Downing Street really denied when we put it to them that they'd brought forward the launch of this new programme to distract from the Dominic Cummings row. They said it was always the plan to get this moving early. But Dido Harding, who has been brought in to run this whole operation, actually admitted in a call to MPs on Thursday morning that it's not going to be fully operational at a local level for another month. So not until the end of June. And international experience suggests programmes like this really do rely on less of a centralised approach and relying on local councils to help roll this out where you have local leaders and expertise. The programme was launched on Thursday, as you say, but there were a number of technical glitches, which they sort of warned us might be coming because it was the first time that they got this up and running. But quite extraordinary, some of those who are directors in public health were only told that this programme was going to be launched four days earlier, expected on Wednesday late afternoon and evening. And they were warned in these calls that the necessary links that I was talking about between the central test and trace operation and local councils has still not been fully established. All this comes, of course, just days before we start to ease the lockdown and Some critics of this whole government's approach to coronavirus are pointing out that it hasn't really been trialled and that the R level, the reproduction level, is still very close to one. It's a little risky to be doing these two things at the same time. I don't think it's a huge problem that we don't have this app up and running because countries like South Korea, who have a really effective track and trace programme that they've been using since February they found that actually there wasn't a huge take-up of the app. People do prefer human contact. What's fascinating is that the government says, well, the app's been delayed because this trial we did on the Isle of Wight did show that the people like to hear from human beings. And also, it's a delicate conversation that you sometimes have to have because, of course, people will have been breaking lockdown rules and they might have to reveal that they've been in close contact with someone who might not be in their immediate family. But we probably didn't need to do a trial in the Isle of Wight to find that out. We could have just looked at the international experience. So I don't quite buy that. There clearly are still technical problems with this app. It's going to be a test now of a number of things. And the most crucial one is how quickly does this system work? We know that you need to get these test results back within 24 to 48 hours in order to be able to halt it in its tracks and reach out to people in quick enough time. If you're waiting days to get your positive test result back, that means that there are days that the people that you've come in close contact with are still walking around unknowingly coming into contact with others. So that's a huge test. Dido Harding, very clear that from day one, these results are not going to be turned around in 24 hours, that they're going to get better as they go. I still can't really understand why it's taken till the end of May to launch this programme, why it wasn't launched weeks ago when you had full lockdown and you would have been able to get the numbers really low test if this whole system worked. I fear there may be a whole series of problems in the coming weeks, but it is worth saying that when you look around the world, this clearly is a system that is going to let us eventually ease lockdown measures. I've been talking to lots of experts about this. It's the exact same system that we use in this country for sexually transmitted infections. So it is very effective, but this is a huge scale. 
We still have a lot of new cases every day and we're about to ease lockdown. So it does feel a bit risky. Indeed, Robert. And I think the key thing is it's going to be another test of competence for the government that the things that they've struggled with on this crisis, testing capacity was a big issue and they've managed to get on top of that and massively increase that. The care homes epidemic has been absolutely tragic and they seem to be getting on top of that now. But this is really going to be crucial for getting the economy moving again. And we've heard this week that Rishi Sunak is going to decrease the amount of support the Treasury is giving to employers and to businesses. It does feel as if the balance is beginning to shift away from the government just paying for everything. But for that to work and to not overwhelm the NHS and to keep the RA down, it's all going to depend on this system working effectively, app or no app. Yes, that's exactly right. And when we look back at the arc of this crisis, I think we will view this week as the week when the government stopped being led entirely by the science and started making political decisions again. Because I think if you actually look at some of the numbers here and the five tests the government set out, the infection rate is still really quite high compared to other countries that are moving out of lockdown and are relying on a similar system. I think the ONS figure said something like 7,000 new cases in the last day. The infection rate is still very, very high, 130,000, I think, live cases still. So you're not starting this tracing system when the number of cases are in the hundreds or even in some countries in double digits where you can really home in quickly and stamp things out. And I think ministers have been surprised and concerned by how long it's taking to drive those numbers down. Laura's, of course, right that there will be teething problems with the tracing system. I think it will probably work reasonably well once it gets up and running fully. But I think the bigger question is whether you're simply asking it to take too much of the strain, given how prevalent coronavirus still is in the community. And what we're seeing now, I think, is the government beginning to bend to those voices on its own side, both within Parliament and Conservative voices outside it, saying this lockdown's a disaster, the economy is more important, there are more lives being lost and more damage being done by being in lockdown than there will be from taking the risk. The NHS can now cope. And I think the fundamental judgment here is that actually it's more important to get the economy going and take the risk. And to some extent, you can see this in some of the rhetoric around the two-metre rule, which... Chris Whitty and I think even Patrick Valance in the last press conference were saying, actually, there's still fairly good reason for maintaining two metres distance. But you're hearing Conservative MPs and other people saying, no, well, the problem is that makes it very, very hard to do business. If we could reduce it to one metre, as they do in some other countries, it's much easier for businesses to get up and running again. And so I think, as I said at the beginning, this is the week when the politics overtook the science Indeed. And finally, George, we've really seen that in the fact that the government has announced that from this coming Monday, barbecues will be allowed again and you can socialise in groups up to six again as long as you're observing social distancing. And if you go round to a friend's garden, you're allowed to pop in their house to use their bathroom, which really is going to make a huge difference to the lockdown and how it currently operates. And the government has set out this whole timetable for opening things up again, dentistry opening from June the 8th, non-essential shops opening from June the 15th, schools reopening from June the 1st. Boris Johnson, it's been briefed out, wants to get pubs going again very soon. But that's absolutely what Robert said, that they want to get not just the economy going again, but give people some ability to socialise, to see their friends and family again, which seems to be happening at a much greater pace than we were told previously. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, because this is not just about getting people to go and have a barbecue with their mates or go around to see their grandparents or whatever. This is about trying to normalise the idea of going out of your house and getting the country back to normal economically as well as socially. And there's been a lot of tension at the top of government between Boris Johnson, I think, who's 
So the point being about the most cautious on the spectrum about this pace at which the lockdown is eased. And those like Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, or Michael Gove in the Cabinet Office, who really want to get on with things. And the third step in this is not meant to happen until July the 4th, which is when pubs and cafes and hotels might start to reopen. I think there'll be a big push, despite the fact the scientists are uneasy about this, to try and get the pubs open again, at least the beer gardens, probably before the end of June, maybe around the middle of June, just to try and normalise the country again, because you just have to look at the numbers racking up the Treasury, the loans, the debt. It's a scary situation. And I think people, as Robert was saying now, are just starting to say, look, the scientists have been very cautious. The two metre rule is about the most stringent being applied anywhere in the world. And actually, the politicians now have got to get a grip of this because the economy is teetering on the edge. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to George, Robert and Law for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and like to check out some more FT journalism, then our latest subscription offers can be found at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep well. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.